Vinyasa. So this morning we return to the meditative cultivation of compassion, which we see as a completely smooth extension of our yearning to be free of suffering ourselves, which when imbued with wisdom and insight, becomes what we call this spirit of emergence, or often translated as renunciation. So that was the focus of our practice the last time we had a morning together, and what, Saturday morning? Focusing upon ourselves. And then if we turn to the, um, the meditation chapter of a guided bodhisattva way of life, which one might very well think would be focusing on shamatha, since that's the first point he emphasizes. Well, in a way he does. I mean, the whole chapter is about shamatha, but shamatha by way of bodhicitta. Right? That's his shamatha practice. Shantideva's shamatha practice. And as many of you will recall, uh, the approach that he takes, the first, the initial step, based upon all of the preceding perfections of generosity, ethics, patience, and enthusiasm, emphasis on enthusiasm, uh, the first step is this equality, dakchen yamba, the equality of self and others, the cultivating this sense of equal worthiness for being free from suffering and finding happiness, equal worthiness between ourselves and others. Uh, and so this is a very good reason then for beginning the cultivation of compassion, self-directed, as, again, is taught in the Theravada tradition and elsewhere for the cultivation of loving-kindness. Very explicitly taught there, right? Directed for yourself, and then extending outwards. Extending outwards, first of all, I mean, assuming you have a pretty good relationship with yourself, you're unabashed, you're unembarrassed about wishing yourself well, then, of course, in the cultivation of loving-kindness, the first one you attend to in the sequential fashion is you attend to the person that you just find the easiest to love, and in a sense, love, of course, in the sense of loving-kindness, um, and that is just cherishing, feeling affection for, and wishing well. All right. So, coming back to the, the compassion, this evenness of self and others, when one really brings wisdom to this self-directed compassion, then one directs this outwardly, First of all, just generally, others and oneself, any, anyone in particular, that this person is equally worthy of being free from suffering as oneself is. And then going horizontally out this way, seeing there are agreeable and disagreeable people and virtuous and non-virtuous people and ugly and attractive people and so forth, and let alone people, there's all kinds of sentient beings, having this sense of equality at equality among all. In other words, unconditional, unconditional compassion. So he's starting with a very big step. He's starting, in fact, at the culmination of the four immeasurables. That's why it's really, really good to be cultivating the four immeasurables before one ventures into these four greats, you know, the great loving-kindness, great compassion. Because the culmination of immeasurable equanimity or even-mindedness is the very foundation for bodhicitta. If you don't have that, uh, the foundations of bodhicitta are just going to be totally lopsided. It's going to collapse. It's like a, like a building built on an, an uneven foundation. It's going to fall over. right? And so this equality, equality between self and other, and then equality among others, that one's heart is equally open in all directions.
So during these eight weeks, let's, uh, we're like cooking a great big Dharma soup with many ingredients. And I'm actually quite confident that all of the ingredients, when cooked well in the same pot, they'll all give each other a lot of flavor. That is, they're all compatible with each other, right? And so I'd like to go back briefly to the uncommon preliminaries. Uncommon preliminaries. Now, the uncommon means it's specifically for Vajrayana. If you're not practicing Vajrayana, you don't really necessarily have to engage, especially in the first one. But the uncommon preliminaries are specifically, they're uncommon, that is, they're not the same as for Sutrayana and Vajrayana. They're specifically for, that's what it means, specifically for Vajrayana, which means specifically for taking fruition as the path. Okay? That is the keynote of Vajrayana practice in general, and of course for Mahamudra and Dzogchen. So it's taking the fruition as the path. It's bringing heaven down to earth. It's bringing pure land down where you live, bringing Buddha down in your realm where you live and seeing the Buddha here and now, right where you are, and not having to wait until you're some highly realized Arya Bodhisattva or, in fact, a Buddha yourself. So recall in the cultivation of loving kindness, you start with yourself, then you go immediately to the person you find it easiest, most spontaneous, effortless, to attend to this person with a heart just full of loving kindness, the, that sense of, sense of deep connection, of affinity, of warmth, of affection and then really wishing well, you know, find it so easy, like a mother for only child, for example, right? And so in a similar way, then when we're going into this uncommon preliminary, developing this relationship with the guru, I would say in the very first instant, it is being cultivated from the perspective, since after all it's Vajrayana practice, from the perspective of releasing one's ordinary sense of one's own identity and coming from that emptiness, adopting this sense of sacred identity, this pure vision of oneself. So again, think about the parallel with loving kindness, right? You start there. If you don't start there, it's just bound to be idolatry, which can, you're not taking the fruition as a path. You think, well, I'm kind of a schmuck, but thank goodness my guru is so great. You know, my guru is a Buddha, but I'm kind of ordinary. Then you're not practicing Vajrayana. You're practicing hero, hero worship, adulation, reverence, and so forth. But especially if your, 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 your guru is, in fact, a pretty ordinary sentient being, like myself being a totally ordinary sentient being, and some people call me their lama or guru, then if you regard, from that vantage point, you're a total schmuck, but Alan Wallace is, oh, he's a Buddha, then you're actually just cultivating delusion, so why would we do that? We have already enough delusion without having special Buddhist delusion. You know? So if anybody wants to view me with pure vision, I'm saying you better start with yourself. Otherwise, you're just going you're going up a dead a dead end, a dead end. If you're not cultivating pure vision for yourself, don't do it towards me. So this whole issue, lama lama, very brief tangent there. Who's a lama? I found a really relaxed answer to that that I feel very comfortable with. And that is the question I can be, if somebody can ask me, Alan, Alan are you a lama? Well, now I've got an answer. But first ask me, am I a grandpa? Am I a grandfather? The answer is yes. 
I am grandfather. Why? Because there's one human being on the planet who says, it's grandpa, when he sees me. And therefore, I am a grandpa. Now, before little Troy was born, I wasn't a grandpa. Nobody in the world called me grandpa. Therefore, I was not grandpa, even if I wanted to be grandpa. Even if I went to Dalai Lama and said, Dalai Lama, your holiness, may I be called, may I please, would you please grant me the status of being grandpa? He said, I'm sorry, no. You're not grandpa. But then, about 11 years ago, something wonderful happened. I got an initiation as grandpa. <laughs> and so ever since then, I've been a grandpa. So since there's one sentient being on the planet who regards me as grandpa, I am a grandfather. Now, does this mean I'm Amy's grandfather? Uh-uh. <laughs> no, Claudio, forget about it. I'm not your grandpa. No, <laughs> stop. I'm only one person grandpa. That's because he regards me as grandpa. If he didn't regard me as grandpa, then I guess I'd be out of luck again. I would be a nominal grandpa. But in fact, I'm a bona fide, fully qualified grandpa. Right? So if there's one person on the planet who regards me as their lama, and it's sincere and it's authentic, then I'm grandpa. Then I'm oh, grandpa. I'm, <laughs> I'm still a grandpa. Then I'm grandpa lama. I'm a grandpa lama. Grandpa for this one, lama for that one. Right? It's quite simple, isn't it? But if there's not even one that calls me Lama, then I just go around thinking, I'm Lama, I'm Lama, I'm Lama. That's like thinking, I'm Grandpa, I'm Grandpa. No grandchildren, but don't let that stop you, you know? So it's very simple. Lama or no Lama, does anybody call you Lama? Then you are Lama, right? If one person calls you Lama, then you are Lama for that person. Now, whether you want to go around thinking, uh, t telling everybody, I'm Lama Allen, Lama Allen, well, that's your choice. I don't need it. So that's, that's easy. So who's your root lama? Another way of looking at it is, who do you find it easiest to develop pure vision for? Who closest mo to your vision, we're not even speaking about objective reality here, from your perspective, who most closely embodies, expresses, manifests the qualities of enlightenment? So you can say, well, that's as, I think that's as close as I can see, that one. I would say that's probably your, guru, your root guru. And it's really helpful. In Vajrayana practice, it's kind of imperative, actually, that that person be somebody who at least has walked around in a human body. You know, for simply to be Manjushri, Manjushri will. Manjushri is really quite separate from you, quite different from you and me. Manjushri doesn't have a mommy and daddy. Right? So if you're if your guru is only someone who is disembodied like an archetypal representation, that's fi fine, but then that means there's quite a distance from, your, from you. Whereas if your root guru also has parents and has a body kind of like yours, doesn't matter what gender, then okay, then you have a basis here. You have a basis for, all right, now we have a symmetry. I view the guru with pure vision, pure identity, I view myself, and then now, now we, we get to work. Right? Then we get to work, just like in loving-kindness. Develop for yourself, develop for the person you find easiest to love, and then what do you do? You start breaking down barriers, right? Out to the other loved ones and friends and casual friends until all the barriers are broken down and loving-kindness extends in all directions. Well, in the same way, of course, in Vajrayana. You've seen it in the sadhana. It's right at the beginning of the sadhana. You imagine all sentient beings having achieved enlightenment. 
every single one of them right in this imaginal reality. And so in the classic teachings, these uncommon preliminaries, you start with yourself and then extend to the guru. Pure vision, pure vision. Symmetry, at the same time reverence, because this one is at least one step closer to enlightenment than oneself. Right? If not, then there's no reason to view that person as your guru. If it's just the same, then dharma buddy. If you kind of have a pretty clear sense, this, is not, this person is not as advanced as you, that's fine. Then just dharma friend. Or maybe that person one day will regard you as lama. Whatever. Right? But then we extend outwards. We're breaking down the barriers, right? It's, well, this is Vajrayana level now. We're breaking down the barriers for developing pure vision. Right? The sacred space. And so then, where, sh- where should be the easiest? After you and your guru. Okay, you have something going here now. That is all for your benefit, right? But now, where should it be easiest to develop pure vision? Well, of course, that self-selected group of people, those people who, like yourself, have gravitated to a certain teacher, a certain teaching, receiving, receiving transmission, perhaps empowerment, the explanation and so forth, shared vision, shared motivation, shared practice. Those should be the easiest people on the planet, right? for whom to develop, to extend the sense of pure vision that you have for yourself and your guru, and now, all right, Vedas and Dakinis. All right, well, at least, you know, like, like Vididatas, like real pure vision, like viewing them, you know, like, like Arya Bodhisattvas, like Vididatas, you know, at least that much, you know, that would be good. And again, there's something that binds a Sangha, binds a Sangha. And the word is right in the word Sangha itself, at least in Tibetan, I know it quite well, Gendun. And that is when you attend to your Sangha, and I'm, I'm atten- right now I'm attending to those listening by podcast, those who are here, we all share something in common. And that is the word itself gives it away. It's Gendun. We're aspiring for virtue. <laughs> that was easy. The Sangha is the community that aspires for virtue yearns for virtue, yearns to cultivate virtue. So these should, in principle, be the easiest people to attend to with pure vision. Because not everybody is seeking to cultivate virtue. We have to be perfectly clear. That's obvious, isn't it? Not everybody knows. Some people are much more after all kinds of things, right? Not virtue. That's not a high priority, right? Many people. Animals and so forth and so on. But Sangha, by definition, by the very name itself, if you're a member of a Sangha, then you're aspiring for virtue, for greater good, greater good. So those people should be not too hard to develop this pure vision. All right, here, this is something we share, that we don't, that all sentient beings don't share. All sentient beings are not striving for virtue, but here we are, and so there we develop pure vision, pure vision. Then we come back. A lot came up in meditation this morning, being a bit verbose. But then we come back to Dakcha Nyamba, this equality of self and others. So this is the guru and ourselves, ourselves and your guru, and the Vajra Sangha, our siblings, Vajra siblings. But then, of course, there seems to be an inner and an outer, inside, outside. And the outside is everybody else, right? All other sentient beings. And that's where, in these uncommon preliminaries, the, as you recall, the axis shifts Rather than viewing from one's own perspective as a Buddha and seeing the Guru as pure, the Guru as Buddha, the Sangha as Viras and Dakinis, you know, enlightened or very, very long, far along the path, you know, pure vision, pure vision, 
then the axis shifts and one is seeking by the power of one's imagination to view all other sentient beings without exception from their own perspective. So there are all kinds of ways to botch this up, to do this really badly. You know, my sangha, not your sangha. Now we're set up for sectarianism. We are Nyingmapas, you're Sakyapas, we're Buddhists, you're Hindus, etc., etc., etc. Well, say anything, there's bound to be a myriad of ways of, of screwing it up. doesn't matter what it is. I mean, sure, people could show it, screw up bodhicitta. You know, there's nothing sentient beings can't screw up because we can screw up anything. We have an infinite capacity for screwing up. But let's not think about screwing up. So now this, this rotation, which is not about boundaries, set, re-establishing boundaries, we the insiders of the Sangha, and you all, you mere, you know, unwashed mashes. Not that, right? But we're actually just shifting the perspective to see their, their life from their perspective. In other words, an extension of empathy. Of empathy. And seeing these people who may or may not be practicing any kind of dharma, they may or not even be human or not human, what have you, that there is, here's this common ground. The common ground of the Sangha is we're all seeking virtue. The common ground of all sentient beings, we all want to be free of, happy, free of suffering and find happiness. And so it's that shifting, that rotation. And as every sentient being wishes to be free of suffering, so do we. And no one is any more worthy or less worthy than anybody else. So it's that very deliberate, conscious shift. Now, as we mature in practice, then the waves of pure vision will at least temporarily extend to all sentient beings and then subside as we attend with compassion and then extend out with pure vision and then subside with compassion. So we see we're just, we're playing here. Consciously, we know exactly what we're doing. Sometimes we're viewing all sentient beings with pure vision, as in the Avalokiteshvara sadhana. You remember? Seeing all sentient beings as Avalokiteshvara. We're doing that deliberately but of course, that doesn't give us a whole lot of basis for feeling compassion for them if they're already fine. If they're already Buddhist, then you know, they don't need any help. There's a reality to that. The deepest reality is every sentient being is pristine awareness. But there's also another reality that doesn't go away, and that is sentient beings are sentient beings. So we're alternating between two valid perspectives. Valid perspectives. And this, of course... We are no exceptions as we are following the path ourselves. You're a Vajra, Vajrayana practitioner, right? So you practice Vajrasattva. You practice, you engage in pure victory practices. When you're practicing Vajrasattva and you're disclosing all of the, this, the mis, misdeeds, misconduct, and so forth and so on you've accumulated in the past, are you at that time thinking, oh yes, and by the way, I'm totally pure? <laughs> no, then you've got nothing to confess. There's nothing to purify. Hey, I'm a Vajrasattva. What's the problem? You know? So no, temporarily... You're shifting, you're doing the same thing in Vajra, Vajrasattva practice. Temporarily, you're viewing yourself from the perspective of being a sentient being, which is right, right? And then you shift it over to pure vision. At the end, you imagine this, this, this merging of Vajrasattva with yourself, and at the end, you are viewing yourself with pure vision. But while you're confessing, disclosing, purifying, you're viewing, you're attending to Vajrasattva as your guru, and you're tending to yourself as a sentient being who's in need of a lot of cleaning up. So we're doing this. But it's rotation back and forth between two valid perspectives. They're not, and on the surface they look contradictory. What are you, a Buddha or not a Buddha? Yes or no? But no, it's a matter of perspective. Matter of perspective. Oh yeah. So let's make sure that we're weaving everything together here. The 
uncommon preliminaries. The teachings on emptiness, that we are not inherently existent Buddhas. So when you're adopting the pure vision of being Avalokiteshvara or what have you, don't reify that. Then you're just, again, adding delusion to the practice. But then don't reify yourself as a sentient being. That's adding, to, that's the pre-existent delusion. And then this don't reify others as sentient beings. They are sentient beings. Why? Because they think so. Because that's a reality from their perspective. Not because it's really the case. Because as with yourself, most people around you, most sentient beings around you are identifying themselves as sentient beings. It's not something we're projecting on them. It's something we're acknowledging that is their perspective, that perspective and not to be discounted, and therefore compassion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we start in Shantideva, we start the, with this sense of equality of self and others, and then Dakshin Jewa is that rotation, that exchange of self for others. That exchange. So you actually are attending to others by way of ima uh, imaginal reality, by way of your imagination. You're attending to others from their own perspective and from their own perspective wishing them well, wishing them to be free of suffering. That's that exchange of self and others. You're shifting. Shifting. But we're practicing Vajrayana, so as you shift, don't reify it. Don't reify it. So you may recall that we're, as we're weaving everything together, we, we saw those references to the five paranormal abilities, or pi, pa, pa, extra, ex, modes of extrasensory perception, and one of them was, you might recall, the extrasensory perception of knowing the minds of others. Of knowing the minds of others. It's really like having x-ray vision. You can actually see other people's thoughts, their desires, their emotions. You actually see it, right? Mm. Because of the very deep samadhi, you're cutting through the limitations of your own substrate and you're actually gaining, you're shining a light on other people's substrate and the activities taking place in there in that the substrate. Geshe Rapten told, said years ago, like 40 years ago, he said, when you attain very deep samadhi, you, you can open your awareness and within, you know, we're not talking about enlightenment here, just, you know, having developed pretty good samadhi. He said, within like 50 meters or so, you can immediately sense if there's any sentient being you can sense the presence of another consciousness in your field, right? So this is right now one of the great mysteries and, and for which there's really no progress at all in modern mind sciences. And it's a simple question. And that is, somebody recently, recently sent me an article that there are some scientists now, I think it, they're drawing from a couple of countries, if I remember correctly, but they have now created out of just tissue a brain, a functioning brain, about the size of an, an eraser head, so tiny. But it's a brain, a little tiny brain, and it has almost all the DNA of a brain. And they made it just out of, I think it was skin, skin cells. And then they, you know, they did their voodoo. And so the question comes, you know, how big does it need to be before it's conscious? If it's the size of a, you know, a tip of your finger or a pencil eraser, that's bigger than the brains of a lot of animals. Definitely bigger. So is that little brain they created in the laboratory? Now, granted, they didn't create life. They took living tissue and then mutated, 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 and then turned it into a little brain. Are they Say again? Are they, Are they grandparents? <laughs> mm. So the question is, is it conscious or not? And the answer is, don't know. 
because they can't even tell the scientists, and I'm not picking on them, but the scientists can't tell whether the other person in the lab is conscious. <laughs> they can't. Scientifically, the person could be a zombie. And this is a big topic of philosophy of mind, you know, are the people zombies or not? Zombie is one who walks around looking like and acting like a human being, but actually isn't. You know, there's no consciousness there. But a really good imitation, you know, like, a, like an android robot, something like that. So it's a big question. It's an enormous question for which there is this deafening silence from the scientific community, and they just haven't gotten there yet. But they're also making no progress whatsoever. And that is, how can you detect consciousness in anything? In after conception, when does when is the mother carrying a passenger, and when is simply a body part? An egg is a body part. I, th I think there's really not much discussion. The woman has any a right to do anything she wants. She can freeze it, she can throw it away, she can fry it and have it with toast. <laughs> she can do anything she wants because it's a body part. Just like your fingernails or skin or anything else you want. It's your body part. But at what point is it not a body part? At what point is it a passenger, which is to say there's a sentient being there? And the answer is deafening silence. I mean, just not a clue of a clue. And likewise, when a person is vegetative, comatose, the person brain dead and so forth, exactly when is there no longer consciousness? Don't really know. Are aphids conscious? Are insect-eating plants conscious? Are coral conscious? It's just homogeneously don't know. And that because consciousness is not physical, it can't be measured physically, so what are you going to do? Even the notion of what are the, the, neuro, the basic kind of neurocorrelates consciousness, the, uh, you know, the minimum amount of neuronal activity that is necessary to, they think, generate consciousness, they don't know. Well, I think that's because it's a fault question. You don't need a minimum amount of neur neuronal activity to generate consciousness, otherwise bardo means would not be conscious. And I think there's anybody who has an open mind and looks carefully, I think there's a lot of evidence of that. So, so Gisharapnam was saying, well, there is a solution to this problem. There is actually a way to detect the presence of consciousness in the field around you, but it's not with technology, which measures only physical after all. So why would, why would you expect something and only measure physical is going to measure something non-physical, which consciousness obviously is? Uh, samadhi actually can able, able to do that. Okay, I'm running on too much. Let's wrap it up. So, but if you did, to play with your imagination now. Imagine that you had developed such deep samadhi that you could actually overhear the thoughts of others. Hopefully it would not be like being in Grand Central Station and having a thousand voices just... <laughs> you know, there are science fiction movies about that. You know, I can't stand it. But hopefully that's something you could just direct your attention. And then you, if you, you know, like a doctor, you wouldn't do it as a, a peeping Tom. <laughs> but as a doctor who would like to really diagnose, you know, diagnose others. How are you doing? Instead of just having to sit like me and say, how are you doing? How are you doing? Okay. <laughs> you know, you actually kind of look in it. You know, never mind, I already know. <laughs> you know, and to give them the advice they need. Like a doctor who's done a very thorough checkup using all the wonder, wonderful technology of modern medicine. But what would it look like? Just a play. Imagine. If you could attend to, focus the light of your awareness upon another person's mind stream and see here and now the thoughts, the desires, the emotions, the feelings arising from moment to moment to moment. And you can see if a person is grieving, you can not surmise, not infer, not intuitive, but you can see 
the grief coming up, you can see the anger coming up, the sadness, the anxiety, and so forth and so on. What would that look like? And, even though I don't know what I'm talking about, that's not going to stop me from talking. Um, I'll tell you. It's going to look like the suffering arising in your mind stream when you are really very well practicing settling the mind in its natural state. That's what it's going to look like. And that is, you're immediately aware of it, vividly aware of it, but with no grasping and no revocation. But there it is. It's arising and passing. And as Shantideva says, suffering has no owner. It seems to have an owner only because we identify with it. So when you get, become very proficient in attending to your own emotions, your desires, thoughts, and so forth, without projecting the sense of ownership on them, and you go deep into samadhi, you tap into that substrate consciousness, then they, you may be able, be able to send out a tentacle to tap into somebody else's and see their thoughts and their sadness, their sorrow, their anxieties, and so forth, and view it in the same way with an open heart, with compassionate heart, but without the identification. But then we see, oh, now we've gone very deep for equality of self and others. Because now you really see, you're not just kind of thinking or trying to cultivate the sense that, but you are seeing, oh, others' suffering is the same as mine. From this perspective, there's no difference. So if my suffering is worthy to dispel, of course theirs is, because there's no difference. Their suffering doesn't really belong to them. My suffering doesn't really belong to me. And therefore, as I care about both equally, they are both equally mine and not mine. And that's compassion. Something like that. So we're, so bodhicitta, bodhicitta, it's nice to stop at the top of the mountain, to, to begin at the top of the mountain. You sit down, as we do at the very beginning, the first line, of the Avalokiteshvara Sadhana, right? How do we start? Bodhicitta. We stop at the top of the mountain. We start at the top of the mountain. Oh, I shall achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. Very good. But in the meantime, we also need to be back down at the base of the mountain, cultivating renunciation, cultivating spirit of emergence, cultivating loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity, and then moving into the great loving kindness and so on. All right? So we approach it from both ends. Yeah? So something like that. Let's practice together. Namo lama deshe dupe ku kunjo sumge ranjin la latang lotu semje nam janju badu kapsu chi Namo in the lama who is the embodiment of the sugatas of the nature of the three jewels I, together with the beings of the six realms, take refuge until our enlightenment.
Semgendoa Kundundu Lama Sangye Jupneni Kanla Kandu Dinle Kiendoa Dewa Damjao For the sake of all beings, I generate the spirit of awakening and cultivate the realization of the Lama as Buddha. By means of enlightened activity, I shall train each being according to their needs, and I vow to liberate the world. Yam Hung, in the northwest frontier of Odiana, in the heart of a lotus, sits the one renowned as Padmasambhava, who achieved the wondrous supreme city and is surrounded by a host of Dakinis. Following in your footsteps, I devote myself to practice. Please come forth and bestow your blessings. Guru Pema City Hung. Guru Pema If you'd like to switch your posture, please do so now.
To the best of your ability, rest in this perspective. The perspective of your own Buddha nature. Aware, of course, that there is another perspective and that is your perspective of being a sentient being, a human being wishing to be free of suffering, worthy of being free of suffering, capable of being free of suffering. In exactly the same way, all sentient beings have this potential, have this underlying purity of their own pristine awareness. But for the most part, they do not regard themselves, do not see themselves from that perspective, but are locked into the perspective of viewing themselves within the context of samsara. Attend to them from their perspective, as if from your own. In this equality of self and others, and then the exchange of self and others. All sentient beings are already wishing to be free of the suffering they know about that is evident. And that is what is called in Buddhism the suffering of suffering, blatant suffering. In the body, in the mind. So join your desire with the desires of all sentient beings, each one wishing to be free. Attending first of all to this dimension of suffering, the most evident, the most public. Blatant suffering. And with each in-breath arouse the aspiration May you be free. May you be free of this blatant suffering and its causes. And you may choose to attend to those individuals or communities that especially catch your attention, draw your attention for the suffering they are experiencing. Attend to them closely. The object of meditation here is not suffering, but sentient beings who are experiencing suffering. And we attend to them with the aspiration, which is their aspiration. May you be free. With each in-breath, imagine, as you arouse this aspiration of compassion, 
Imagine the darkness of their suffering, be it physical or mental, whether pertaining to their social interactions or their environment. Imagine the darkness of their suffering converging in upon this radiant orb of light at your heart. Imagine drawing it in right into this nucleus and let it there be extinguished without trace, gone in a flash with the light at your heart undimmed in no way diminished with each in-breath. breath by breath, in this, in this realm of possibility, imagine them here and now, becoming free, entirely free, of this dimension of suffering. Imagine their relief. And then go deeper. Attend again to sentient beings, but this time attend also to a deeper dimension of suffering, or the suffering of change. 
which sentient beings may experience as good fortune, the good life, enjoying, enjoying. But all their enjoyment, all their pleasure, is rooted in attachment, held together with the tentacles of attachment, of craving, of desire, of greed. And they're enjoying their temporary success. Attending to them like a person who's taken a very sweet poison, for which the, the effects occur only gradually. Attend to all such all such beings with compassion imbued with wisdom and understanding. May you be free of this deeper dimension of suffering that is rooted in attachment and therefore rooted in delusion. May you be free not of joy, not of happiness. But free of the suffering that is implicit in any sense of joy and happiness that is sustained by way of attachment. And again, with each in-breath, imagine the darkness of this suffering converging in and dissolving into your heart with each in-breath. Breath by breath, imagine them finding such freedom here and now. Enjoying good fortune still, but without the toxin of attachment, of clinging, of grasping. Finally, we attend to sentient beings with the eyes of compassion, deeply imbued with wisdom, 
seeing to the very roots of suffering, the deepest dimension of suffering, pervasive existential suffering, that refers to our fundamental vulnerability to all manner of suffering, and this stemming from grasping onto that which is not I or mine as being I and mine, and reifying that. Attend to all sentient beings from the deepest realms of misery to the highest states within samsara, all equally prone to this deepest dimension of suffering. And with each in-breath, draw in this darkness and extinguish it in the, in the infinite light of your own pristine awareness, breath by breath, May you be free. May we all be free. And with pure vision, imagine all beings realizing such freedom here and now. Imagine your own mind indivisible from that of all the Buddhas of the three times, 
here and now. And release all modifications of the mind, all imaginings, all aspirations. And let your awareness rest in its own state, naturally pure. So in the spirit of symmetry, I mentioned when we're looking out beyond the context of the Sangha, of the Vajra siblings, to all such beings, we rotate the axis to seeing them from their perspective and then rotate it back. Well, of course, the same goes for attending to the Sangha. The cultivation, the uncommon preliminary practice, is to do something we've never done before, and that is to view those around us as like being vidyadharas, vidyadharas Probably it didn't come naturally. But of course, when a member of the Sangha is in suffering, whether physical injury or in the case of one of our friends here, the loss of a loved one, the mother of one of us dying, and others, good time to shift. And then it's compassion, of course. It's not like we shouldn't feel compassion for those in the Sangha. That's silly. Yeah. So then we shift, and then we shift back. And then, of course, on occasion, you may be suffering yourself, right? Vajrasattva doesn't suffer, Avalokiteshvara doesn't suffer, but you may suffer. So then you shift and view yourself with, with compassion, with kindness, with acceptance, with benevolence, with patience, as you would to a good friend. Yeah. So it all kind of works out in complete symmetry, doesn't it? Yeah? Very good. See you later. <laughs>